Good morning. It is the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody? It's Sunday morning. It's 7.16 a.m. I am cleaning the shit out from my eyes still. Happy to be with you. Happy you're here with me today. This podcast, like all of my podcasts, is brought to you by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up through Patreon and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. You guys are the people I do it for. You guys are the ones that keep me in business. Thank you so, so much. I want to shout out some of my patrons. Then I want to get on with the damn show as quickly as possible this morning. First and foremost, my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. JM Bullion has been in business for a decade now. They have done over $3 billion in sales. They are literally the only place. I buy my gold and silver bullion from. Why is that? Well, because they always have a great inventory. Even when other sites are sold out, they turn around my orders quickly. I get shipping numbers. I can track my orders a lot of times the same day that I order shit. B, the packaging is always discreet. It always arrives on time. And they're just wonderful people to talk to and do business with. If you've never bought gold or silver before, and you are looking for a personal touch, instead of just going to the website, you can always go to jmbullion.com, and that link is in the podcast description. Otherwise, you can reach out to Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. She would be more than happy to help you. She is there exclusively for QTR Podcast listeners, and if you uh, if you buy over $199, she will give you free shipping and $5 off your order. So shout out my friend Kathy over at jmbullion.com, and thanks to Jam Bullion for continuing to support my podcast. I love you guys. This podcast is also sponsored by my friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. The Sanglucci Steam Room, if you didn't listen to my last podcast with Sanglucci, you should do it. We talked about how they are the OGs of options trading. What is the Steam Room? It's a one-of-a-kind piece of software that was around before anybody else was tracking unusual options activity that helped pick up strange moves in the often illiquid options market that a lot of times can telegraph where the equities market is going to go. Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have been doing this shit for 10 years now. So before anybody was doing or clamoring about unusual options activity, these guys were the OGs of it. These are the guys that coined the term sweepers, put sweepers, call sweepers. You hear that shit all the time? That was a Wall Street Jesus original. Check out my friends over at the Sanglucci Steam Room. They'll let you try their software for free. Tell them QTR sent you. Tell them you don't want to give them a credit card. Tell them you don't want to get scammed by another trading company that just got busted by the FTC for fraud like you just did. (laughs) Now, Lucci is an honest man. Great guy to do business with. The link to his stuff is in my podcast description. In addition to the Steam Room, he's got the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader. Folks, he parties in Puerto Rico. All right, this podcast is also brought to you by my friend, last but not least, Pete Hedgetus over at the Trader's Path. Speaking of people that are running honest, reputable services that will not get busted by the FTC, the Trader's Path is one of those. It is an all-inclusive day trading community for the average Joe that just wants some honesty around them. They want they want some honesty with the group that they surround themselves with. They don't want to be pitched something. They don't want to be sold. They don't want to be upsold. They don't want to be oversold. They want content. They're okay with paying for the service, but they need some value. What kind of value do you get from the Trader's Path? You get daily watch lists. You get live streams that Pete does. You get a community of people that you can bounce ideas off of. 
He does investor education. I watched one of his, uh, I think, Sunday night watch list scans a couple of weeks ago. He actually does a very good job. I had uh, I had never seen his stuff before. And uh, truth be told, I'm not a member of the Trader's Path, but I'm thinking about maybe I'll just sign up and get a glance, see what's going on in there. Uh, the reviews that I have gotten from other QTR podcast listeners have been fantastic. So my friend Pete Hedges, he's another guy. If you want to sign up, he'll let you do it for free. Take 14 days free. Talk to Pete. His contact info is in my podcast description. Pete, Lucci, JM Bullion, these guys will all work with you. They know me. They want your business. They want to show you that they can kick ass and that it's worth the money. And they will do whatever they need to do to make sure that you feel welcome and happy and generally comfortable in signing up and or trying their services. Fuck me. Let's get on with the show. This podcast also brought to you by some of my newest patrons, Michael Kahn. Thank you, my brother, my latest patron. Man, Actually, Michael Kahn, my only patron in December. Things are getting a little rough around the holidays, folks. No, that's all right. Michael, I appreciate you. And going back to November, my friend James Polos, Brian Farrenbach, thank you. Eugene Jolly and Tony Prez, Ray and Daniel Reither, thank you. Derek Seifert, my friends at the IntelliTrade app. And how about some patrons that have been with me for a hot minute, like Kirk Woodcock, Pete McAusian, thank you, my friend. Dylan, my buddy Stephen Bokel. Trinker is still in the house. Bertha Moreno is still with me after all these years. Thank you, Bertha. Mark Jeftovich, thank you for still being in the house, my kind brother. I didn't forget about you, my friends over at Baz Trading and Pete Yarbrough. We're going into some old names you've heard a million times before, like Sheer Luck and Thomas Wysocki. Chris Bede, Chris Boas. I don't even think Chris Boas is with me anymore, but I'm going to shout his ass out too. Just because that's the way things go, folks. How about my friends over at Traders for a Cause and Corvus Gold and my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer and Russ Valenti. Thank you guys so much. Six minutes in, let's get on with the damn show. Just so you know, this is not investment advice. I am not an investment advisor. I hold no registrations. I hold no licenses. It should be clear from the first six minutes of this podcast already. I have no clue what I'm talking about. So please don't follow this advice. This is not financial advice. So let's get on with it today because it's Sunday and everybody wants to get on with their day. On the other line, I have my favorite economist and uh, all-around gentleman and great individual, Mr. Peter Schiff of Euro Pacific Capital and various other giant money-making conglomerates. How are you today, sir? Oh, I'm doing good this morning. How are you? I'm doing good, buddy. Thank you very much for uh, taking time out of your very early Sunday morning to speak with me. I know I appreciate it, certainly, and and my listeners do, too. Well, it's not as early for you because we're an hour later. Well, then it's not not as early for me. Not as early for me. All right. (laughs) Well, I was good. I stayed in. I didn't drink anything last night. I I was on my best behavior, so I would be up and somewhat sharp how many times would you say i've texted you over the last month to do a podcast i don't know i i don't keep track <laughs> but quite, quite a few i mean I, you know. so i got a lot of things i want to talk to you about today um the first thing i want to do right off the bat is i did this podcast a couple of weeks ago where i talked to mark spiegel of stanfield capital and we had this big argument about gold and I actually texted you the day after and I was like dude you should come on and and we should talk about this immediately but um and one of the things that I wanted to uh, ask you about were a couple of the things that we were kind of bitching and moaning with about uh and kind of arguing with each other about the first was with gold he was kind of 
postulating that there was this efficient market hypothesis in gold. And he was trying to price gold at fair market value, you know, relative to how much money was in the money stock and relative to the general, uh, you know, central bank insanity. Um, given that a lot of that inflation, as as we define as expansion of the money supply, hasn't shown up in consumer prices, he was kind of making the argument that he thinks gold is fairly valued now. So my questions to you to start are, is gold fairly valued now relative to what the central banks have done? And how the hell do you determine that when you have all this printing and, and velocity is going down? Yeah, well, obviously, gold would be fairly valued considering what um, the market currently believes. But if market participants are incorrect in their beliefs, then maybe gold is not fairly valued, which is what I believe. I think that there's much too much complacency with respect to a lack of inflation. Uh, there's far too much um, confidence in central banks and governments to keep everything under control, a, a lack of understanding of the depths of the problems that have already been created. And so if a lot of the you know larger buyers in the market don't really perceive the gravity of the situation or the threat, then they're not buying as much gold as they should or they're not willing to pay as high a price for gold as they should I, I think all that will change I mean I think over time reality is going to set in for a lot of people who are oblivious to it now and there's going to be a lot more demand for gold and then clearly the price is going to go much higher today that that demand is not there yet and so the price is lower but Obviously, the price of gold is rising. I mean, gold is, you know, 1850 or something like that. I mean, we've pulled back from a high above $2,000 an ounce. But, you know, gold started this big bull market below 300 in 2000, 2001. So it's been, you know, a pretty clear trend, although there have been declines in you know cyclical bear markets within this secular bull market that I think is is going up or ongoing but I, I disagree that inflation has failed to show up in consumer prices I think it has I mean consumer prices are higher today uh, than they were 10 years ago 20 years ago they're not lower um, and it's hard to say where consumer prices would actually be but for all the inflation created by the Fed and other central banks. It's certainly likely that increases in productivity would have lowered consumer prices. And because consumer prices are not lower, that is still the effect of inflation, preventing consumer prices from falling and preventing consumers from realizing the benefits of being able to buy goods and services at a lower price. So. Uh, that would have increased their standard of living. So they, they are being robbed of that higher standard of living by inflation. And then, of course, I still don't trust the government inflation statistics, which I think 
were deliberately engineered to report a official inflation rate that is lower than the actual increase in prices that consumers are, are paying. So I think that the books are cooked in that respect. And so inflation is there. But I do agree that um, it hasn't manifested itself to the degree that I think it should or that it will, because I think a lot of the inflation has uh, been centered in financial assets, stocks, bonds, real estate, things like that. And the U.S. trade deficits, which have gone up considerably, have helped to keep a lid on consumer prices in the U.S. Uh, because we've been able to rely heavily on imports to increase the supply of goods available while the money has all supply has increased as well. Do you look at like the the Chapwood index ever? No, because I'm not even <clears throat> sure what it is. All right, so the the Chapwood index is something that I discovered after my last podcast with uh, Mark Spiegel because what I argued was that the price increases I saw on an annual basis, at least the ones that I could quantify, right? The, the prices of beers at my local bar, the price of my condo association fee, the price of my health insurance, all of the things that I could pull off the top of my head. Uh, I was seeing 10% increases annually, 8%, 10%, 12%, things like that. And so someone had suggested I check out this Chapwood Index, which uh, calls itself the the true cost of living increase in America. And it, and it takes a basket of goods, um, and you can actually go on their site. And, and basically, they started it because they claim there are problems with the CPI. And so they created an index, and I'm trying to find the... Uh, the does, does it tell you what's in the basket so you it, can it see does, the yeah. composition? Yeah, it absolutely does. So it's got everything. Health insurance, glass of beer, T-bone steak, hotel stays, gym membership, movie tickets, digital cameras, craft mac and cheese, deodorant, Ziploc bags, parking garage fees. I mean, there's a, there's hundreds of things on this list. There's probably four or 500 things on this right. list. And everywhere across every city, and it looks fairly well diversified, um, it includes some things that CPI leaves out, the big ones, you know, health insurance and things like that. Um, and across every major city, you see these numbers annually, 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019. They're all between 8 and 12% in what looks like there's, there's, uh, there's about 100 cities on here. I'm looking at the first 50, and I'm looking at the first five years for the first 50 major U.S. cities. And they're all coming in between what looks like 6.3% and around 13.4%, anywhere in between those. Uh, annually or over? A, annually, a, a, a... yeah. The annual true cost of living increase in America, they call it. Yeah, I mean, that actually surprises me in that it's it's higher than I would have guessed. But I would have definitely guessed that it's higher than the 2% that the government claims. I remember some time ago, I composed my own basket, and I made a YouTube video out of it. And I think I just put 20 items in the basket, but and I just compared the prices and it was much higher than the government. In fact, one of the things I did, I specifically focused on the video then on on one category. And you can see this video. It's still up on YouTube on, on inflation. It's got maybe 150,000 views. So it did OK as far as the view count. But I focused in particular on newspapers and magazines because according to the government, and I did this video in 2013, so 
the government CPI had claimed a 30% increase in newspaper and magazine prices from 2003 to 2013 using the official CPI. So I just went and I looked at the price of newspapers and magazines in 2003, and I compared them to the prices for the same newspapers and magazines in 2013. And all I did is look at the price, which is easy to find because it's printed on the covers. So you can go on the internet and you can see these magazine covers and newspaper covers and just read the price, right? So I took the price in 2003 and I compared them to the prices in 2013. And the average actual increase was not the 30% that the government claimed, but it was 130%. So the actual increase in the price far exceeded what the government claimed. Now, I don't know what the methodology was that, that took a 130% increase and turned it into a 30% increase. I mean, maybe uh, they claimed that, you know, the, the magazines were better somehow and they hedonically adjusted them. Or maybe they said that, well, people are <laughs> paying the cover price. Maybe they assume more people are subscribing and getting a discount. I don't know. But a fair apples to apples comparison by just looking at what's the price that is actually written on the cover of the magazine or the newspaper, that that's more honest than the government. Because the government has a vested interest in pretending that inflation is lower than it is. Right. Uh, because it, it, I mean, all sorts of benefits come to the government from claiming a lower inflation rate. Number one, the cost of living increases to Social Security are tied to the official CPI. So the government doesn't have to raise Social Security payments as much if they lie about the inflation rate and claim that it's lower. That's a big the same one. thing with same thing with taxes that are indexed to inflation. You know, if capital gains or if the, the the personal exemptions are indexed to inflation, they don't have to raise the exemption as much as they can lie about the inflation. So basically they can increase taxes by simply pretending inflation is lower than it is. But of course, one of the other main benefits is it gives the Fed cover to continue to keep interest rates uh, as low as they are and monetize government debt because the whole theory, and, it, and the theory doesn't even make sense, it's BS anyway, but the Fed claims that there's not enough inflation. Inflation is below its 2% mandate and therefore it can continue to print money, keep interest rates artificially low in order to get the inflation rate up to 2%. But if the inflation rate is already much higher than 2%, if it's actually 4 or 5 or 6%, then on what basis is the Federal Reserve trying to create additional inflation? If we already have far more uh, than uh, their, their, their target. In fact, if inflation is really 4 or 5%, the Fed should be raising interest rates to bring the rate down. The Fed should be fighting inflation, not trying to create more. So that is the biggest irony is that we actually have far more inflation than the Fed claims that it wants. Right. But because it's lying and pretending that we don't, it can actually pursue policies to raise an inflation rate that is already much higher uh, than its so-called target. So let's go back to what I asked about at first, which is 
what I want to be able to deliver to the listeners is what is one clear, concise way? So say, you know, we know we're going to see this huge increase in the money supply next month. uh, And we know that they're going to print, you know, 20% of what the total money supply is next month. How do you, what model, what chart, what do you, what would you look at to try to determine whether or not the price of gold is overbought or oversold at a point like that, where you have to make a big adjustment for, okay, well, we're doing X amount more in QE. So what what's the one kind of like uh, go-to for you that's easy enough for normal people to understand that they can look at to kind of see how you're going to price? Because we know gold to dollars is an exchange rate essentially, right? So what what which way would you best price gold to try to figure out if it has accounted for or not accounted for uh, additions to the money stock? Well, well, I, obviously you can look at the price of gold in the market versus the cost to mine it, you know, which has gone up dramatically. So, you know, the gold companies are making more money at the current gold price, but, you know, they're not making as much money as you think they, 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 they would given the fact that the cost of mining has also gone up, which is part of inflation. And, you know, you can compare the price of gold to the price of other commodities to kind of get a sense for, you know, where gold is historically, because gold is, is a real good. And you compare what the market is valuing gold at relative to any other uh, commodity and, and see if gold looks like it's expensive based on its historic relationships or if it looks like it's cheap and, and have ha, have an idea there. But, I, you know, I'm not trying to figure out exactly what I think the price of gold should be. I think that's a very difficult exercise. I'm just pretty confident that the price is not nearly as high as as it should be because investors are not factoring in what I believe is going to be happening in the future, nor are central banks, which, you know, a number of central banks have been buying gold. But if you look overall at gold as a percentage of reserves, it's historically low. Central banks don't have enough gold relative to their total reserves in comparison to how much gold they've had in the past. And I think that they really need to be upping their allocation of gold, given what's going to happen to the dollar. I mean, the dollar is not going to be able to maintain its reserve status. It's just impossible, given the political climate of the United States, the fiscal position of the United States, the sheer quantity of money uh, that we're going to be printing, not just what we've already printed, which in and of itself should you know, disqualify the dollar from being the reserve currency. But we're clearly going to print even more in the future than we have in the past. And, and one of the reasons, in fact, probably the main reason that we're able to be so reckless when it comes to our fiscal SSs and, and money printing is the reserve currency status. So the world is enabling this profligacy and the more it enables it, the, the, the more it's going to continue and the worse it's going to get. So the world has got to cut us off. And so that is going to happen. And so what are central banks going to replace 
the dollar with. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the euro. I mean, I don't think it's going to be the yen or the RMB. So, I mean, gold is the natural, you know, heir apparent to the dollar because gold is what we used before we used the dollar. And the only reason we started using the dollar instead of gold was because the dollar was as good as gold because it was backed and fully redeemable in gold. So gold is the monetary anchor uh, that keeps the global uh, you know, monetary system, uh, you know, afloat. I mean, that's what we need. We need real money uh, behind the paper to give it actual value. And and so I know that in a world where gold is remonetized, gold is not going to be $2,000 an ounce. It's just, it, it can't be unless prices of everything else go way down, which I don't really see as a likely possibility. It seems much more likely that the gold price will go up rather than the price of everything else coming down to to make $2,000 gold work. So, you know, I'm positioning for that and buying, you know, buying gold now and buying gold related stocks. But, you know, gold's not going up in a vacuum. I mean, look what's happening to copper. Look what's happening to nickel. I mean, look what's happening to these other metals. They're going up. I mean, oil, I know, is still pretty cheap, but it's not going to stay cheap. I mean, <laughs> this is a, this is a, an aberration with, uh, you know, $49 oil. Oh, this is the highest price it's been in many months. But, you know, I think it's going higher than that, quite a bit higher. And uh, agriculture prices in, in particular, I think, uh, you know, food prices are going to be moving up. Uh, rather, rather uh, substantially. So is it accurate to say that your forecast on gold moving up is based completely on what is going to happen in the future? And and you're not you're not coming out and saying right now that gold has still not caught up to all of the money printing we've done already. You think that we are well, I, where we're supposed to be now? Well, I don't know. I mean, we are where the market thinks we should be. Um, but you know, the market can often misprice assets and that is your opportunity. I mean, you could say the market is efficient, um, but it's only as efficient as the participants are accurate in their forecasts because it's reflecting the consensus that exists today as to the future. I mean, you can go back to the dot-com bubble and say, well, you know, was the market efficient? I mean, look at where a lot of stocks were priced that ended up going bankrupt. Well, I mean, I guess it was efficient given the misinformation that uh, investors perceived. I mean, people were much too optimistic than they should have been. And that excess optimism, enthusiasm was what was reflected in the price. But if people said, hey, wait a minute, that conventional wisdom is wrong, yeah, then they, you know, they was they could bet against that. You know, they could have shorted those stocks or you know sold them if they if they had owned them. And oh, look, I think the same thing is true today. You know, there are a lot of stocks today that I think are mispriced because I think investors are overly optimistic on their assumptions for future earnings. Now, of course, some of these investors may not even care about future earnings. They could just be buying these stocks sheerly out of momentum and they just expect the momentum to continue uh they don't really care where these stocks are going to be you know in the long run because they may not own them in the long run they're only there as long as the momentum is there and so as soon as it breaks then 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 they'll get out 
Um, so, you know, I think the, the, the market is mispricing a lot of things. I mean, look at Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin is, you know, almost $24,000. Is that an efficient market? I, mean, I think Bitcoin is basically worthless. But, you know, it's, you know, right now there are a lot of people who uh, disagree with me and they're willing to pay uh, $24,000 to buy Bitcoin. But, um, you know, who, who knows what people will be willing to pay to buy Bitcoin in the future, my uh, thinking is a lot less than that. Yeah, so we'll get. I want to get to Bitcoin uh, in a, in a couple of minutes. I want to ask you though quickly, if we continue down the path we're on, and the dollar is unseated as reserve currency, and we have the emergence of central banks considering all of these digital currencies, which has been the headline out of several countries now. There, you know, exploratory committees about it and such. In your mind, what's the most likely scenario for a global reserve currency, whether it's backed by gold or not, going going forward? And how long do you think it'll take before that happens? What what country comes out ahead in terms of their currency? Um, who's the first maybe to adopt uh, a gold-backed currency or something like that? And, and kind of what do you see as the most likely scenario and how long does it take to get there? Yeah, well, as far as the country that is most likely to back their currency by gold, I mean, that may be China because China yep. is the world's largest producer of gold. Uh, so they have a lot of gold in China. And, you know, the, the Chinese would probably jump at the opportunity of having their currency be the dominant currency in the world. And one way to ensure that would be to be the only currency backed by gold because the benefit of you know having a fixed relationship between your currency and gold is it creates a level of confidence among anybody who is holding your currency or transacting in it or uh, borrowing in it or lending in it even more importantly that the currency is going to maintain value and that the government is not going to print too many because the ability to print is constrained by the gold that backs it up. And so that would give the Chinese currency a huge competitive advantage uh, globally. And in fact, if they uh, took that currency and made it a digital yuan backed by gold. And that's what all these central banks are talking about uh, is just making their own currencies available digitally, right? Um, but if the Chinese did that, it would be extremely easy for the world to conduct business in yuan. And yuan could act as a you know medium of exchange and a store of value that you know could be utilized uh, you know globally. And uh, so that would be very, very uh, advantageous. Of course, you know, other central banks might uh, be forced to compete or obviously they may try to pass laws to prevent people from utilizing that currency, but they wouldn't really be able to enforce uh, those laws against the Chinese government, just maybe against their own citizens for trying to use a superior medium of exchange, a superior store of value. Uh, than the ones that you know their local government is uh, offering into the marketplace. 
But you know, other countries could do it. I mean, the last uh, central bank that actually removed the gold backing from its currency was Switzerland. And I know there was a move by the Swiss people to force Switzerland to have gold reserves again. And they spent a lot of money to defeat that uh, referendum. And so maybe the Swiss will be able to succeed the next time. You know, they ended up, instead of putting money in gold, they ended up putting all these Swiss francs into the stock market, <laughs> particularly uh, U.S. tech stocks. The Swiss Swiss Central Bank is one of the biggest owners of uh, U.S. Uh, 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 companies. So, uh, I mean, so other central banks could certainly move in that direction because when, when the dollar really goes into a crisis, you know, it's not just going to happen in a vacuum. I mean, people are going to start to lose confidence in this entire fiat system that we have. Uh, not just in the dollar, but clearly the dollar is going to be the biggest loser, meaning it's the American economy, the American uh, citizen that will suffer the biggest decline in the standard of living because America has benefited like, like no other nation from this monetary system because we are at the center of it. We are issuing that reserve currency. So we have the exorbitant privilege of consuming without producing uh, and borrowing without saving. And and so that, you know, that has enabled us to live beyond our means for quite some time. In fact, we've raised living beyond our, our means to an art form. I mean, I mean, that's basically what Americans are known for is buying stuff, yeah, not making debt. it. Just 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 going and going and buying it. Yeah. With debt. So, yes. And borrowing money. It's like people keep saying never underestimate underestimate the American consumer. The American consumer will keep on spending. Yes, that is the problem. We keep on spending without regard to what we make, without regard to our incomes. We'll just spend it. If we don't have the money, we'll borrow. We'll keep on spending. I mean, we should not be celebrating uh, the fact that we're doing this, uh, but we're able to get away with it because of the dollar status. And so we're not going to be able to get away with it uh, forever. I think the days are numbered. Look at what's happening uh, right now. I mean, the dollar is falling uh, everybody expected it to rise, with the exception of me and maybe a few others. Uh, but now the dollar is falling. Uh, but few people really appreciate how much further the dollar is going to decline. And that's another reason that I think gold is mispriced. Now, I think that gold is not as mispriced in terms of other currencies. Because remember, everybody looks at the price of gold in relation to their own currency. And... Over the last several years, gold had been continuing to make new all-time record highs in every currency except the dollar. Right. And gold finally made a record high this year in terms of dollars. Uh, but that was years after uh, that happened in other currencies. So I think that when the dollar really starts to fall, it's going to be Americans that are going to be seeing the greatest increase in the price of gold. And, and, and so you, know, you always got to look at it from whose you know, reference point, which currency are you, are, you, are you comparing gold to? Because everybody you know, has to look at gold the way they look at all the other prices in their own currency because that's what they earn. That's what they save. So that's their, that's their you know, barometer. So the, the dollar is really going to tank. And, and right now, people are not that worried about it. We, we moved through the 90 handle uh, this week. Uh, without a lot of fanfare, uh, you know, the media looked at it, but 
nobody's really concerned. I mean, more people are thinking, oh, yeah, this is good news, right? It's going to help our exports and, and stuff like that. Um, but it's it's not good news. It is it is bad news. It it means Americans are getting poorer. Uh, their their incomes have less purchasing power. Their savings have less purchasing power, and our standard of living will fall along with the dollar. But this decline is just getting started. So we'll see what happens when we crack through eighty, which I do expect to happen sometime in the first half of. 2021, which is a pretty big drop. You know, you got another almost 10 handles to get down there. And I think that we're going to be below 70 potentially by the end of next year. But I think if not, then sometime in 2022. And that would put the U.S. dollar index into uncharted territory, uh, record lows, but really without any discernible support underneath. So that's where the crisis can begin when the bottom just drops out of the dollar and it goes into free fall. Yeah. And if you look at the dollar to gold as just an exchange rate, uh, which, you know, Jim Rickards calls it an exchange rate all the time. You just look at it uh, as a currency Mm -hmm. pair, as any other currency pair. And that happens, you know, if the DXY goes to 60 or 70, like you're saying, I mean, you're talking... (laughs) talking about at least $2,500 gold, probably $3,000 gold by the end of next year, if that happens, just based on very simple back-of-the-envelope currency conversion type math, right? Yeah. I mean, look, you could always consider it an exchange rate. I mean, dollars have exchange rates to other fiat currencies, and it has an exchange rate to real money, which would be gold. And, you know, I always remind people that the value of gold is not really what's changing. I mean, gold's value is relatively stable over time. What happens is that fiat currencies lose purchasing power over time because of the amount of printing. And so you just need more and more units of a currency to buy the same quantity of gold. So it's not that gold is going up. It's that currencies are going down. But, yeah, you know, I don't really follow Rickards too much, you know, because he blocked me on Twitter. So I don't really know what he tweets. Did he really? After you guys had that Kitco uh, interview you just did, you guys you know very I- civil and very nice to one another. You know, I don't even know when he blocked me. It may have been before. And the only reason I found out is I went to, like, um, mention him in a tweet. And so I went to look for his uh, Twitter (laughs) handle to make sure I got it right. Uh, And it it wasn't going to be a negative tweet. I was tweeting something that, you know, I thought was a positive. But then I I, I said that he blocked me. So that I was blocked. Yeah, he blocked me too. I don't know when, but I think it was years ago. I th- and I think I probably. I wonder, what, I wonder what you did to get blocked. You know, I know why Jeff Gunlock blocked me. I mean, he blocked me because he <laughs> didn't want me commenting on his page. But I, I never really commented on um, on um, uh, on Rickard's page. I probably deserved it. It was you know years ago I think because I've been blocked from him for a while. So listen, Jim Rickards, if you're listening, Peter and I both love you. It's time, <laughs> the time has come to unblock us. All right, we're all on the same team here. By the way, I thought that you guys that Kitco interview you guys did a couple of months ago. It's a half hour and it's just you and, and Rickards and you field I think three questions each. I thought you guys were very respectable to one each other, uh, to one another rather, and I thought that the interview was. I thought you guys were both very much on the same page. It wasn't like you and Brent Johnson where sometimes you guys disagree on a lot of big, big picture things. I mean, you guys sounded like you really were on the I same mean, page. I, will, I mean, in most cases we are. I mean, the only thing we really seem to disagree with 
on was the definition of inflation. And I, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, you know, I mean, it's pretty clear to me. I mean, I've got an old dictionary and I look up inflation and it says an expansion of the money supply. I mean, so Rickards likes to accuse me of changing the definition. I don't. I, everybody else wants to change the definition. I want to keep the definition the same because, you know, I when you redefine terms, it, you know, it creates all sorts of problems. So I like to continue to refer to inflation in correctly as an expansion of the money supply. That is the origin of the word inflate. Prices don't inflate. I mean, prices go up and down. Inflate means to expand. You can't expand prices, but you can expand money supply. That's where the word inflation comes from. And there's this and, big, you know, there's this big argument when it comes to pricing gold due to, you know, which definition of inflation you're using, right? If you're using the the like Marco was saying to me, I'm not seeing the CPI number go up. And what he what he was arguing essentially was that the CPI number goes up, that drives people into the price of gold, that eventually moves the price up, whether it's warranted or not. You know, my stance is kind of like, well, if they're printing the money and it's out there in, you know, bank deposits, but it never hits, uh, you know, the price of a box of cereal because it's not leaving these deposits. Yeah, but accounts. it's still it's still inflation regardless because the money supply has been inflated. Look, the, the 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 reason that everybody started talking about inflation in terms of prices is number one, that is how inflation really manifests its way in a negative way for the general public, right? Because obviously if you print more money, all else being equal prices are gonna go up. Now, all else is not always equal, right? Because the supply of goods can go up. And so prices, you know, instead of going down, they could stay the same, but but that is still inflation causing prices to be higher. But where consumers really notice the effects of inflation is when consumer prices are rising. Right. And they don't like that. I mean, obviously, for good reason. I mean, the Federal Reserve wants to pretend that consumers wanna pay higher prices, but they don't. They want to pay lower prices. That's that's why Walmart is so successful, right? Because they they have everyday low prices. If if their motto was everyday <laughs> high prices, they wouldn't they wouldn't do as well. So consumers want low prices, and when prices are going up, they're upset, right? Now, if the government were to continue with the definition of inflation being an expansion of the money supply, that causes prices to go up. And if now prices are going up, the consumer knows who to blame. I mean, there's only one entity that expands the money supply, and that is the government. So the government doesn't want voters blaming it for their rising prices. So if they can kind of change the definition of inflation from an expansion of the money supply to raising prices, now the government can push responsibility or shift responsibility for those price increases to other factors because hey we're the government's not raising prices we're not it's not our fault that these greedy businessmen have raised their prices it's not our fault that these labor unions are demanding higher wages and there's a wage price spiral or it's not our fault that OPEC is jacking up the price of oil right now the government can blame everybody for the increasing prices and except and, and except itself when that that's the real cause so I don't want to buy into that. I don't want to help the government deflect responsibility for inflation 
onto the free market, onto businessmen, onto speculators or greed or whatever they want. I want the public to know where their inflation is coming from. It is coming from the government. It's coming from the Federal Reserve. Let's talk about the effect. You know, we're talking about businesses now, how they function, big businesses, small businesses. Let's talk about the effect of the policy that the government right now is pushing with regard to these lockdowns, namely the fact that these giant big box retailers are allowed to stay open and these small (laughs) businesses are being forced to shut down. When you zoom out and you make some very casual observations about what's going on here and you take the COVID narrative kind of off the table a little bit and you just look at what's happening. How do you not see this as some type of massive abuse of broad overreach of government that is disproportionately affecting the middle and the lower class right now? Oh, look, I think it it is a travesty what is going on. And the fact that the public is willing to accept this, I think, is very dangerous because it's just letting the government know what it can get away with. Right. And that it's basically usurping more and more power and individuals are giving up, surrendering more and more of their rights. Look, the policy does not make any sense. You're right. I mean, by what basis are some stores allowed to open and others are not? Uh, It it doesn't make any sense. There's no real rhyme or reason to it. I mean, look, you know, say, oh, you know, we, we, you know, we can go into uh, the drug stores, we can go into the supermarkets, uh, you know, but but, you know, we, we, we can't go into a restaurant. I mean, what is the difference um, between that? You know, I mean, you could try to say, well, you know, you need you need to buy the drugs. But I mean, a lot of people are not. I mean, you know, they, there are different ways that you could you know, get delivered or something like that. Um, and, and and certainly these large businesses that are benefiting from the fact that they're smaller competitors are being disproportionately impacted by this. But look, there's all kinds of crazy rules here in Puerto Rico. I mean, you can't you can't sit on a chair on the beach, but I could sit on a chair around the pool. I mean, so the hotels are taking all the chairs off the beach and sticking them around the pool. And so now people that used to be more spread out are now condensed in a smaller <laughs> area. I mean, I, I mean, like, look, I mean, the whole none of it makes any sense. I mean, I go to the gym here, and you got to wear a mask while you're in the gym. Uh, but most of the time, I got to take the mask away from my mouth because I can't breathe. You know, you start your heart rate goes up, and you're you know, and, and you got this mask on your face. So half the people, you know, the masks you know aren't even really on. But I looked. I mean, people have to make decisions for themselves what health risks they want to expose themselves to. Let businesses decide, do I want my customers to wear masks or not? And, you know, if you're one of these people that only wants to be in a business where everybody is wearing a mask, then don't go into ones that don't require masks. I mean, let the public decide individually. Let business owners decide without the government forcing them uh, what precautions they want to take. And, you know, workers can decide, do I want to go to work? and get a paycheck or do I want to forego my paycheck because I think it's dangerous to go to work? You know, I mean that those, everybody has to uh, make decisions and, and make their own trade-offs, but nobody should get a bailout. I mean, 
I think, and I'm sympathetic to the argument that if the government forces you to shut down your business, then maybe the government should compensate you. But it should be the government that is forcing you to close, in which case that's generally the local government or the state government. So don't say, hey, the federal government needs to bail out some business because a state forced it to close. Let the state bail out the business, not the federal government. Because I think if the federal government and the Federal Reserve made it clear from the start, hey, you know, you guys, you states and you cities, you're responsible for your own choices. You know, you have the power to deal with this uh, pandemic the way you want, but do a real cost benefit analysis on every decision you make. Right. Because the federal government is not going to be there. So if you put if you shut businesses down, don't expect the federal government to bail them out. If you put people out of work, don't expect the federal government to supplement their unemployment claims. So if you're going to close businesses and you're going to put people out of work, then you figure out how to deal with the cost. You suffer the consequences locally or you know what? Then don't do that. Don't put people out of work. Don't mandate these business closures, you know, and people are going to say, well, that would mean more people might get covid. Well, maybe maybe more people would get covid. But most people who get covid get better. They don't die. It's not fatal. You know, the people who are dying from COVID are people who are dying from everything because they're in they're octogenarians. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously, you know, when you're in your 80s, there's a lot of things that kill you that don't kill you when you're in your 30s or your 20s. You know, so I mean, 80 year old people can get killed falling out of bed, slipping in the shower. I mean, they die, they're dying all the time. I mean, that's you know, I mean, I'm not happy about it. I mean, I wish we, we could live forever, but we can't. And uh, and as we get older, we're more susceptible to all sorts of things. Uh, and uh, and so, you know, we change our behavior. I mean, there's probably not that many 80 year olds, uh, you know, up on the ski slopes. I mean, I know there's some of them, but I mean, obviously, I mean, you, you change your behavior because if you fall when you're that old, I mean, you could do some serious injury. I mean, young people fall. They get right back up. It's no big deal. But you break a hip or something when you're when your bones are fragile. So. Uh, you know, I mean, you ever stuck behind some old person driving? Look how slow they drive. They, they're trying to they're so worried about getting into an accident. They, they drive at 35, 40 miles an hour on the highway uh, causing accidents. But, yeah, I wow. mean, so let the people look, let the people who are most at risk. And I said this from day one, the people who are most at risk, stay home. Don't go. I mean, most people in their 80s aren't going to work anyway. They're retired. So, you know, just Although more you know. and more, more and more nowadays, they are going to work more and more. They're yeah, taking on a second and third job when you're in your 80s. But uh, no, I agree but, with you. you I, know, and obviously, if you if you live with if you're taking care of an elderly parent, if you're living with somebody who's at risk, then then you should be more cautious, uh, you know, in 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 getting exposed. But yeah. look, I mean. Look, I don't want to get COVID, but I don't want to get sick at all. I mean, there's all kinds of diseases I don't want to have, but that doesn't mean I I, I stop living my life and, and, and live in a bubble because I don't want to be exposed to anything. I mean, how what's the risk that you get just by getting behind a wheel of a car and, and, and driving someplace? You know, I mean, everything we do uh, has a degree of risk associated with it, but that doesn't mean that we completely give up our lives because we don't want to take any any risk yeah i you know from the beginning of the shutdown i 
was arguing that, well, these businesses, they should have more cash on their balance sheet. They should have been more prepared for this, um, which I think part of that argument still holds true. But uh, John Najarian had said to me on a podcast, well, if the government's forcing them to shut down, it's the government that should be compensating them. And I said, that actually does make sense. And so I'm glad to hear you say that because well, I've, as long I've become as it's more the sympathetic. Same, yeah, I, as long as it's the same government. Right, right. Not, right. But not, as, as a business owner, government. as a business owner, how do you handicap the idea that the government is just going to come in and shut you down at some point for some arbitrary well, now, reason that see, nobody's ever thought of? Yeah. Well, you see, going forward, I think that this is now a risk that all business owners need to prepare for. I mean, obviously. Right. This was out of left field. I mean, nobody who opened up a restaurant would have ever expected this. I mean, I know there's all sorts of risks in restaurants. I mean, most restaurants fail anyway. It's a very risky thing to start a restaurant. But I don't think anybody, when they were factoring in all the various risks that they were taking, I don't think anybody was thinking, okay, pandemic that shuts down my restaurant and, you know, I'm not allowed to operate. So this came out of left field. But now that we have established this precedent, I would say that opening up a restaurant is far riskier than it was in the past. And so fewer people should open one, number one. I mean, I mean, you'd have to have rocks in your head to want to open up a restaurant. Um, but if you are going to open up a restaurant, you better be way better capitalized. You better have a lot of cash. So that you know that every time there's a pandemic and you got to shut down, uh, you can pay your bills. In fact, if you are a landlord and you're going to rent to a restaurant, you better make sure that you've got a really good tenant that can pay rent even if their restaurant has to close down. So maybe you should charge even higher rents when they're open just to guard against that. And in fact, the restaurateurs, they better charge much higher prices for their meals so they can make a lot of money when they're allowed to be open. Uh, And of course, you know, if they're going to be having to spend more money to make sure that their employees are safe and their customers are safe, if they're going to have to limit their capacity and things like that, well, you know, they're not going to have the same economies of scale. They're going to have to charge a lot more uh, for their meals. And obviously when restaurants are going to have to charge a lot more, for meals, well, they're not going to have nearly as many customers because, you know, there's supply and demand. If you increase the cost of eating in a restaurant, fewer people will choose to, to dine at restaurants. Because <laughs> people want so, everyday low prices, just like you said, not everyday so, high prices. So the, the result of this whole thing is going to be that there are not going to be that many restaurants. There will be, <laughs> there will be restaurants. They'll be very expensive. You know, but they'll be there and not as many people are going to eat in restaurants. Now, you know, more of the restaurants will be of the, you know, the variety where you just take out because those are the restaurants that can survive the pandemic. Right. You're allowed to just serve takeout. Uh, You're allowed to. So those so more people will be like, look, I want to open up (laughs) a a, a takeout, a fast food restaurant or something where, you know, people don't sit in the restaurant and eat with waiters and waitresses and ambiance. I just want a kitchen with a drive up window or, you know, where I can deliver. So those are the type of restaurants that are more likely to to open, uh, you know, given this. And obviously now all states are not the same. So there are some states that maybe didn't 
you know, crack down as hard. And so maybe those states will have uh, more restaurants uh, because it's not as risky uh, to open them up as states that, you know, went full lockdown uh, and, and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the whole landscape is going to change. I think the cost curve is going to be bent upward. Uh, the U.S. economy is be is going to be less efficient. Look, the same thing happened after 9-11. Uh, you know, after 9-11 happened, the government required all sorts of new uh, safety precautions. So, uh, you know, you want to go into a building now in New York. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, you got to get a pass. You got to give me your photo ID. I mean, there's all kinds of added security. None of that was free. Um, and so that is, you know, run up the cost of operating buildings. Uh, nowhere was the cost uh, more, you know, strong than in the airline industry. Look at the entire TSA that exists today that didn't exist prior to 9-11. I don't think the TSA is making anybody safer, but it's certainly running up the cost of uh, the airline, air travel, and it is making it a lot less convenient. I mean, it really is uh, making the experience of uh, being in an airport and traveling by plane, uh, you know, a lot worse having to deal with the long lines and uh, you know, the security checks and, and, and stuff like that, that that goes on through the TSA. And of course, we also have the Department of Homeland Security that we have to pay for. I mean, why we needed the Department of Homeland Security is beyond me. We already had the Defense Department. I mean, aren't they defending the homeland? I mean, if the Defense Department isn't defending the homeland, what the hell are they doing? Uh, so but now we got that. So, I mean, we're probably going to get new agencies i wouldn't be surprised if biden came up with a whole new pandemic agency as oh, if the yeah. fda wasn't enough we need a new agency we're going to have to have all new protocols uh to protect people from all sorts of diseases uh yeah i mean this is just the beginning of another whole uh additional regulatory burden you know on an economy that we can't even afford the burdens that are on the economy now let alone these new ones that are, you know, in the pipeline. Well, the Homeland Security was, you know, two reasons. One, that was a, uh, I'm sure I can't quantify it right off the top of my head, but I'm sure some method of uh, absconding with some more of our rights, but also too, because that was George Bush's, he likes saying the homeland, you know, hey, we're going to protect the homeland. They wanted to put that into a title somewhere, I'm sure. And I think that's probably Yeah, well, look at, Look at Donald Trump came up with the Space Force. Yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah, but I, mean, I, I can argue for a can't Space Can't the Air Force. Force cover space? I mean, do we really need another branch? Was <laughs> is there air in space? I mean, look, the air the, the I mean, the, we got NASA, we got the Air Force. We do we really need the Space Force? I would I mean, argue you know, every time I, I take he says the Space that, Force over Homeland yeah. Security any day or over the TSA oh, no. any day. Every time week. he says the Space Force though, I just think of Spaceballs, the movie. <laughs> And Nick Moranis is dark helmet. Yeah. But I mean, it's like, but uh, no, I mean, look, I mean, why? I mean, Trump was supposed to make government smaller, not make it bigger, not come up with a space force. Yeah. Well, but, he ran on um, a lot of things that he didn't. Uh, yeah. We're broke. Yep. I mean, OK, we're broke. We have these huge deficits. You'd think the last thing on the agenda would be to add a space force. Well, this this segues nicely into my next line of questioning here, because I think in, in a year or two, we could be begging for uh those lies that trump told because i think we're lining up the planets are aligning here for some kind of uh real shit show as it as it relates to central banks and the government specifically in this country because we have now all of these 
so Biden will get into office, right? Janet Yellen, who is the old Fed chair, is now going to become the Treasury Secretary, arguably, uh, arguably moving the uh, the central bank and the government the the closest they've ever been to one another in in history, right? I mean, if that's not a direct tie between the two of them, I don't know what is. And and on the table now, we have all of these nonsensical initiatives that the Fed is being tasked with handling or at least attempting to consider climate change and uh, social justice and all of these things that have nothing to do with uh, the Federal Reserve as it was conceived uh, decades ago. They, you know, they weren't thinking about dealing with climate change when the Fed was brought in. You know, the Fed was supposed to be this objective body that act clinically and surgically. And now actually, we have actually, that was it wasn't supposed to be that either. I mean, the 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 original purpose of the Federal Reserve was to supply an elastic money supply, uh, which meant that the money supply would expand when the economy expanded and contract when the economy contracted, uh, <laughs> which is the opposite of what the Fed does now. And they were just supposed to create a superior uh, currency to the bank notes that were in circulation prior to the Fed, because prior to the Fed, uh, you had all these individual banks issuing their own currencies and the Federal Reserve was supposed to uh, issue its own currency of higher quality. It was going to be backed 100 percent by commercial paper and 40 percent by gold, which was superior uh, to uh, what the average uh, currency that had been in existence prior to the Fed. And the Fed was basically going to be acting as a rediscounter. It was going to take in um, uh, notes from other banks and then discount them uh, with its own notes. And, and so it was going to make commerce easier because now, you know, instead of somebody from New York going to California with a bank note that nobody in California has heard of, everybody was going to be negotiating Federal Reserve notes. But the Federal Reserve was going to be a private banking syndicate. Uh, you know, it was not owned by the government. I mean, it totally private, separate entity uh, doing what the government had no constitutional authority to do because the U.S. Constitution does not grant the government the power to print money. So it can't do it. And I think the framers are the, the people who drafted the Federal Reserve Act understood <clears throat> that. And so they created an independent body to do something that Congress uh, could not do. Uh, so but, what are, I mean, so what are the, the consequences going to be of this politi politicization of the of the Fed now that I I well, think is yeah, hitting a scale we've be, never seen, right? Yeah, I mean, look, it, the, the, the fact that the Fed is independent was already a sham. Um, you know, I mean, look at all these joint press conferences uh, with the secretary of the Treasury and the Fed chairman. And apparently they talk every day. Look, as far as I'm concerned, they shouldn't even be allowed to communicate. There should be no communication. There should be a Chinese wall between the Fed and the uh, and the U.S. Treasury Department. Um, but now you've got the Fed chairman like begging the Treasury Department to run bigger deficits right. so that he can monetize them. I mean, so the, the, the Fed is not supposed to be an engine for inflation. I mean, they're not supposed to be enabling. In fact, when the Federal Reserve Act was first passed, it was not even legal for the Federal Reserve to own U.S. Treasuries on its balance sheet because the people did not want the Federal Reserve to enable deficits. So they weren't allowing the Fed to even own Treasury bonds at all. Uh, so what we have now is nothing like how the Fed was conceived. In fact, 
there's no way the Federal Reserve Act would have been passed if people thought it was going to do what it's doing now. I mean, you know, we had a lot more sense back in 1913. Unfortunately, we didn't have enough sense not to pass the act at all uh, because you have to realize that, you know, when the government gets its uh, nose into that tent like the camel, you know, that that's a big problem. You never give the government anything. You give them an inch to take a mile. And that's what happened uh, with uh, the Federal Reserve. But when it comes to Yellen, look, Yellen was a lousy Fed chairman. Um, anyone who thinks she did a good job doesn't understand what she did. I mean, she raised interest rates just once before Donald Trump was elected. So she only hiked rates once uh, while Obama was really president. In what, and the minute years? she hiked them, yeah, and the minute well, she wasn't there for ten years because when 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 um when Obama came in, uh, um, Bernanke was still uh, chairman, oh, okay. and of course he he didn't raise rates at all. Um, but when he he's the one that appointed Yellen, and so he appointed Yellen. And Yellen finally raised rates one time in December 2015. The stock market went down and she never raised them again until after Trump was elected. And I don't think she would have raised them had Trump lost. I think if Hillary Clinton won, we never would have had another rate hike out of Janet Yellen. And contrary to what everybody says about, you know, Janet Yellen and how she was uh, warning about the financial crisis and nobody listened to her. And, and, and that's all a bunch of nonsense. I completely uh, exploded that myth that the media uh, basically created on YouTube. If you watch my two videos, Janet Yellen exposed part one and two, I went over the very speeches that Janet Yellen gave where she supposedly was warning about the housing bubble and the coming financial crisis. And those very speeches actually prove the opposite. She was so clueless, very dismissive of other people's warnings, saying there was nothing to worry about. There was no housing bubble. Housing prices will never go down. And even if they do go down, it's no big deal because the economy can handle it. So Yellen was as clueless as anybody else at the Fed. So don't believe the fake news that suggests that she was like another Peter Schiff. Uh, she clearly was not. Well, and I think she is going to be, with her liaising with the Fed, I think the the Fed is going to attempt to address climate change, address, you know, whatever the social justice issue of the day is, address things like student loan debt. Um, I think they're way more likely to do that than they ever would have been. And I'm just wondering... What do you think that's going to mean in terms of acceleration of, of printing the dollar? I mean, is the thing well, just going to go how, – how much further can we overclock the printer before it explodes? Yeah, well, you know, the Fed has no actual power to address anything. I mean, all they could do is print money. So, I mean, you can't change the climate by, by printing more money, right? I mean, so the, the only thing the Fed can do is finance government – spending right as opposed to the government raising taxes to finance that spending but that means that inflation simply acts as a tax to enable more government and so instead of individuals paying for uh let's say uh new green new deal programs with higher taxes they end up paying for it through higher inflation so the government doesn't take their money but the government takes their purchasing power. They still end up buying less stuff. See, when the government takes your money, let's say you 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 earn 
uh, $100,000 and the government takes, uh, you know, 10,000 more in taxes, well, that's $10,000 that you can't use to buy stuff. So you have to cut back, right? You now don't have that $10,000. So you can't buy what you were buying before when you had 100, because now you only have 90. Well, if the government just prints the money instead of taking it from you, and then everybody responds by raising their prices by 10%, you still have the $100,000, but you can't buy what you used to. Now you're effectively buying 10% less because you don't have an unlimited amount of money. So you now have to cut back on what you're buying because everything that you do buy costs more money. And so that's how you know the, the taxes is, is paid, is paid through uh, rising prices. So yes, you know, if, um, the Fed, the government can rely more on the Fed to cover the cost of their crazy programs, uh, then they're going to do it. And, you know, I mean, how is student loan forgiveness? I mean, I, I talked about this on my podcast. I mean, nobody, uh, focuses on how is student loan debt forgiveness paid for by inflation? I mean, that's all it is. It's the same thing as printing money. How is the debt going to get forgiven? I mean, nobody is saying that we should raise taxes on some people to cover the losses from forgiving student debt. It's like, hey, let's just forgive it. Let's just pretend it doesn't exist. Well, the banks still get paid. The government guaranteed these loans. So if the students don't have to pay the loans, but the banks get repaid, where's the money coming from? Right. The Fed's going to print it. It's inflation. Now, a lot of the loans have been directly made by the government. Well, the government put that money into the economy with the anticipation that the, the, the borrower would return it. But if the borrower doesn't have to return it anymore, then the money supply expansion is permanent. It's not a temporary, it's, it's a permanent increase in the money. And now students or you know former students who used to have to pay back their loans, now they just have extra money to go out and buy stuff. And so that's just new money into the economy, bidding up prices. So it's just more inflation apart from the moral hazard. I mean, could you imagine they forgive these student loans? I mean, everybody, that's now the precedent. So who gives a damn? Borrow 100,000, borrow a million, who right. cares? I mean, it's gonna be forgiven. I mean, that's the, that you're giving the, the colleges and the universities carte blanche to charge whatever the hell they want. I mean, they'll just say, hey, our tuition is a million dollars a year, but just borrow the money. Who cares? It's going to be forgiven. What do you care? And we'll throw spitting, in a free. You're spitting. We'll in the throw face, in a free car. You're spitting in the face <laughs> of like, people that already paid their loans back. I mean, what if you're the guy that just finished his last payment on three hundred thousand dollars worth of dental school? You know, forty eight hours oh. before they announce forgiveness. Well, you're. Well, look, you're the idiot. What about the parents that that sacrificed and saved for their kids' college education? You know, and then they paid for their kids college. They didn't even have to borrow money versus the parents that just spent all their money on themselves and just told their kids to just go borrow the money for college. Right. I mean, you're 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 sending all the wrong signals. You're punishing the people who did the right thing. You're rewarding the people who did the wrong thing. And now you're creating incentives. You're basically telling people you are an idiot if you pay for college. If you <laughs> save if you have a college fund for your kid, you are a complete fool. You know, so. You know, just just borrow money. So, yeah, look, it's the, the only way there's only one way that you could do college debt forgiveness. And that's if you eliminate all student loans going forward, direct student loans, guaranteed student loans. That way you don't have the moral hazard. Look, we're going to forgive these loans, but there's no more loans. So you want to go to college. You better be able to pay for it. 
colleges, you want students, you better lower your prices or you won't have any because we're not going to subsidize it. But also, and I would be very sympathetic for some type of student loan forgiveness, as long as it's paid for, not by the Federal Reserve, whose taxes are going up? Or, you know, how about let's get rid of the Department of Education? They're the idiots that were responsible for the student loan program. So maybe we can save some money by abolishing the Department of Education and putting those savings towards uh, student loan forgiveness. And there's a lot of other uh, government spending that I think could be cut so that we can uh, relieve students of this burden that was imposed on them by government. I mean, these liberal politicians forget, but for the U.S. government, there would be no student loans because no private business would be dumb enough to loan all these liberal arts kids all this money without any collateral. So the government created this problem, and now they complain that it exists. Capitalism never would have shouldered these young kids uh, with all this debt. Only government is dumb enough to do that. Yeah, or they could take some money from the endowments also, too. I don't know they'd, they'd be able to pull enough, but relative to, you know, what in addition to other things and relative to, you know, the well, total obviously amount they, could, too. they could pull from the endowments to send a message. Yeah, to the obviously. Too. Yeah, obviously, you know, if we do do some type of forgiveness, along with abolishing all future government guaranteed or direct student loans would be to have some type of surgical approach. I mean, obviously, there are plenty of successful people that can repay their loans. Right. I mean, there are plenty of wealthy people uh, that have actually you know, done some good with their college degrees. But then again, you have all these people that have worthless degrees. And yeah, I mean, maybe if the colleges that that rubber stamp these worthless degrees, maybe they could also be held accountable to repay some of these loans, uh, you know, um, because they're the ones that got the benefit of the loans. They got the tuition, right? That's where the money went to these colleges and universities. And, uh, you know, if they're basically giving out diplomas like cotton candy, uh, and they just took took all this government money, then maybe they can be held accountable too. Look, there are a lot of <clears throat> problems that need to be unraveled, but all these problems were created by government and their supposed desire to help. The government tried to help make college more affordable and instead they made it far more expensive. Well, and at the same time, not only did government make a college degree more expensive to get, but they reduced the value of the degree once you earned it. So they, they reduce the quality and increase the cost. I mean, that is typical uh, government. And maybe that would send a signal to universities, too, that a lot of the, you know, postmodern nonsense that qualifies for degrees, you know, really, it may expose them for their for their true worth, which would incentivize the universities yeah. to churn out students in things like the sciences, for instance, oh, yeah. where, you know, th there's a greater tide of productivity where, you know, they're going to be able to earn more. I mean, what's crazy is, I'll tell you what, Peter, I was an yeah, English. Or instead of, real quick, instead of the government guaranteeing the loans, how about if the university guarantees the loans? Right. Or how about if the university makes the loan directly. Therefore, it's going to really vet the quality of the applicant and the the uh, degree. I mean, right now, I mean, if you were a D student, right, in in high school, you barely, barely made it out of high school, right? You had a D student, you go to some rinky-dink college, and you have a Mickey Mouse major, right? Some liberal, you know, you major in, you know, sociology of sports or something like that, right? You can borrow as much money on the same terms 
as an A student, you know, who's a, who's now a computer science major, right? right? Yeah, you're, you're, you're regarded as equally credit worthy by the government. Well, and some of these colleges are adopting new models too, where they take a portion of your salary. They'll lend you the money, they'll pay for your tuition and then they want x percentage of what you make going forward and i actually think that's you know essentially they're taking equity stakes in their students which i think is actually a pretty good model because that again also incentivizes people to go out and and i think the first school that did this too was some like uh coding school right some computer engineering school so you know that but you also yeah you also have to realize that we're trying to solve a problem that didn't exist before the government intervened I mean, if you go back to the days before student loans, when college was actually affordable, <laughs> it, this was not a big deal. College was not expensive. And the prices, I mean, I also mentioned this on one of my YouTube videos. I looked at the price of Yale uh, University or Harvard, and you know they went 50, 75 years without even raising their prices. I mean, the prices were exactly the same. So it wasn't like prices went up like, 10% a year like they do now. They were pretty stable. And I also compared the cost of college to uh, average income. And it was much lower, much, much lower. So a lot of Americans could easily afford college. I mean, a lot of parents could easily afford to send their kids to college. It wasn't that big a deal. But for uh, the parents that didn't have the money, it was very easy for the kids to work their way through college. I mean, that's what my father did. My father came from, you know, he always said he wasn't sure if he was uh, upper, lower, or lower middle class, but, you know, he had working class parents. He was one of eight children. Um, you know, my, my grandmother didn't have a job, so my grandfather worked as a carpenter and raised eight children, and his wife never, you know, collected a paycheck. That was typical uh, of that time. But, you know, he didn't have, like, extra money to send my dad to college. So my dad got a job waiting tables over the summers, and that was it. That's all he needed. He had a summer job, and he paid his way through college. He didn't take out any loans. He went to University of Connecticut, uh, but graduated with an accounting degree. When he graduated, he had no debt, and it didn't cost his parents a quarter. You know, And he just used the money he made from his summer job. And so why can't we go back to that? I mean, we had such a strong economy before the government screwed it up that any kid could take a summer job and get, and graduate college for debt without, without any debt. I mean, we don't have the ability to do that anymore. And in fact, one of the reasons that we have uh, the college loans is, you know, we, we lowered the voting age down to 18 from 21, which was a mistake for a number of reasons. But obviously 18 is when a lot of kids are starting college. And so how do you get these 18 year olds to vote for you? Tell them that they don't have to work over the summer to go to college. Hey, you don't have to have a summer job. Have fun, party, borrow the money to go to college. You know, we'll we'll guarantee the loan for you. I mean, why should you have to toil uh, over the summer when you know you can you know you can have fun? And so that was basically the idea. And what the government said is, look, you know, why work that summer job now? Because you know you don't even have a college degree. You're working hard. You don't really make that much money. Why don't you just party all summer, get your college degree, and then once you get your degree, well, now you can earn a lot more money, and it'll be really easy to repay this loan because now as a college grad, your time is more valuable, and so you can earn more money, and you can pay off the loan. So that was kind of the deal that the government made with, with the young kids to vote for them. 
was that you know they were gonna not gonna have to work their way through college anymore. They and, and then of course that was the beginning of the end. I mean then now the college cost a fortune, and they also helped wreck the economy. So even if you want to pay for college by working a summer job, you can't. I mean no, college is so expensive. No kid could work for the summer and pay and pay tuition, room and board like my dad did. And the worst part is <clears throat> when all said and done, and you get out of university. Uh, through this out of whack way that you're talking about, you still have a degree that, you know, isn't really going to generate, you know, I think the the free market would put the focus back on uh, degrees and programs that generate productivity. I just remember like I was an English major and I learned a lot of great things in college, but I remember sitting and reading Jacques Derrida at one point in one class that I have about deconstructionism and you know the deconstruction of sentences and stuff like that and I just remember sitting in class at 21 years old or 20 years old just thinking like either I am the dumbest fucking person alive or we are talking ourselves in circles here about nothing and here I am 15 16 years later with a little bit better grasp on exactly what Derrida was proposing what we were talking about and we really were just talking ourselves in circles about nothing and so there's so many of these programs where kids are coming out of university and they're not they're not equipped with any kind of torque to generate productivity. They're just look, they're, they, they become experts at nonsense. Look, in America, education is really a racket, right? It 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 is all for the benefit of the uh, educational uh, establishment. You know, from you know the K through twelve. Uh, school system, uh, through the universities. Look, before the government decided that everybody should go to college, a high school diploma actually meant something. I mean, if you got your high school diploma, that opened the door to most jobs in the right. United States, right? Because not a lot of people even graduated high school, right. right? So a high school diploma meant something. Now, a college degree, well, that was a whole new level, right? So to the extent that you got a college degree, that, you know, was something that you needed for just a very, uh, you know, small percentage of the jobs required a college degree. But now, because everybody has a college degree, well, a high school degree doesn't mean anything anymore. So basically all that happened by putting everybody into college is you now need a college degree to do what you used to be able to do with a high school degree. But you're not learning anymore in college. I would say that the average high school grad let's say in 1920, 1930, 40, the average high school grad knows more than the average college grad today. I bet if you just gave them standardized tests and oh, you know, mathematics or definitely. You know, geography or English, literature, whatever, I, I think that we that kids were better educated graduating the 12th grade in 1920 than they are with a master's degree from a university today, right? on average. And you know, I remember when I went to Berkeley, even years ago, and I'm sure it's worse now. I mean, we had kids that were taking remedial math, remedial English. I mean, why are they even graduating high school? I mean, back in the day, you actually had to be proficient to graduate high school. Now they just rubber stamp everybody. You can graduate high school and be illiterate in America and then still get admission to college. You know, and you know, what the left wants to do now is they want to make, you know, college free, right? They just like, you know, K through 12. 
What they want to do is make sure that a college degree is just as worthless as a high school degree so that now if you want to differentiate yourself, you got to get a master's degree or a PhD. Right. I mean, they want to keep kids in school till they're 30 before they can get their first job. You know, one of, one of my favorite videos that I made, I talk about it a lot, uh, you know, because I want I wanted to get more views. I wish it had more views. I mentioned it on Joe Rogan, even it, you know. I thought it would have helped get more views. It's got a, maybe 250,000, but it should have millions and millions of views. But um, <laughs> it's the view I did. Just just Google Peter Schiff College, and you can see this video I made one you know one day I was in New Orleans for this conference I do every year, uh, and I was walking down Bourbon Street with a mic and a camera, just asking all the people that were working, not the people that were there partying, because it's a party street and everybody's out having a good time. I was only interviewing the people who were working that night, who were, you know, uh, driving the pedicabs, tending bar, uh, the doormen at the strip clubs, right? I, I, the guys that were that were you know, emptying the trash cans. Those were the guys I was interviewing, and every single person I interviewed had a college degree. Some of them had multiple college degrees, and I was saying, "Look, is this just a temporary job? Are you? No, no, this is my job. This is my career. This is what I do." You know, and so I mean. And all these people had debt. They all had college debt. And they were doing jobs that you didn't even need a high school degree to do. Yet, you know, so th this is what the government has done uh, to our young people, to this country. Saddled them with all this debt and worthless degrees. Um, you know, so it, and yet somehow the left, the liberals, are, are not getting any of this blame. Somehow they're able to blame capitalism or the Republicans or whatever for this problem. Amazing. So I want to move on. I got two more topics here and I know uh, it's Sunday morning. I appreciate you being generous with your time. Let's talk about the banks uh, because on Friday, uh, the Fed cleared the banks to resume their buybacks. This has been an area where you and I have differed in opinion over the last uh, year. Uh, I, you know, I've kind of been saying for six to eight months, I thought that buying bank stocks was actually an opportunity because uh, despite the fact that the, the dollar is going to undergo punishment, that the Fed will, uh, you know, basically we will have learned nothing and the Fed will continue to capitalize the large <laughs> banks, which is exactly what they've done. Uh, you've kind of argued the opposite point. There's a lot of uh, losses coming from loans and things like that. Uh, I want to get your take on what happened Friday with the Fed basically, uh, you know, allowing the banks to resume buybacks. And here we are. It looks like the same old story again. Yeah, you know, I am not a big fan of the banks, although, you know, we did uh, earlier this year, we did took a position uh, in uh, our uh, accounts and our funds in a Canadian bank. So we have one uh, bank uh, or maybe two. I think we might have even bought another one, but no, we don't buy any U.S. banks. But we saw some, you know, beaten down uh, banks and, and, and took a position. We're still way underweight financials, uh, but at least we have a weighting because until this year I had zero weighting <laughs> in financials. Uh, but we're still way overweighted in material stocks. And, you know, and that's where we're seeing the big gains. You know, I even mentioned on my podcast, you know, one of my personal biggest positions is a, you know, copper nickel company. And it was up 50% this week. I mean, people want to focus on the market or they want to focus on, oh, look with Bitcoin, but a stock that's up 50% in a given week. And what does it do? It just owns royalties for copper nickel. What does that tell you is really going on? So look, you know, I would rather own 
all of the things that are going to go up because the Fed is bailing out all these banks and printing all this money and propping things up. So I think, uh, you know, businesses that are, you know, have real assets, you know, raw materials or real, you know, they're going to do a lot better than just, you know, the, the banks, which is all all financial. Um, and, you know, I, I don't like being in bed with the government because they have a tendency to screw you over. And basically, the, you know, I mean, you're a bank, you're just basically, you know, almost an extension of the government. I mean, you're and the government is going to end up turning on you, you know, when you're, you know, they're going to vilify the banks and they're, they're going to have ways to, you know, undermine them. Yeah, they're bail them out with one hand, but it comes with a lot of strings. Those bailouts are not free. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what the because now it does seem like they're in uh, a bit of a you know they're in bed with each other again at this point and so it'll be interesting to see what that next kind of turn of events is where they pay with the left hand and then take with the right hand at some point let's uh yeah but you know the problem too though with these restrictions on buybacks look i it's i'm never of the camp that two wrongs make a right but you know a none of these banks should be bailed out right but if you're going to bail them out, yes, it makes no sense to let them take the bailout money and just buy back their own stock. So uh, to to mitigate the damage from one wrong, you have a second wrong. Right. But, you know, the, the best solution is to do nothing wrong. And that is, hey, all these banks are on their own. You know, we're not going to bail you out. And then if you want to buy back stock, go ahead and buy it back. But you're not going to do it with taxpayer money. But what really should happen with the banking system is the government should get completely out of it. The government should eliminate all deposit insurance, no more FDIC. Uh, the banks should not enjoy that subsidy. They should have to compete in the market for deposits based on uh, the quality of their loan portfolios, uh, not just you know you know the interest rates that they could pay or how cheap their services are, how many ATM machines they have, but they should have to compete on our bank is safe and we're not going to fail, you know, and, and, and right now they don't do that. And that's a huge moral hazard because the government says, who cares where you put your money? Right. Uh, we're going to bail out the bank if it fails. So the banks no longer have any incentive not to fail. I mean, they used to have some minimal incentive, which was, you know, they would lose their own capital. But now that they know they're going to get bailed out if anything bad happens, I mean, you've taken the moral hazard to a whole new level. So let's get out of uh, uh, deposits. You know, we didn't have deposit insurance until the Depression. So we made it through uh, the, uh, you know, the 19th century. We had the Industrial Revolution uh, without uh, deposit insurance. And even, you know, during the depression, the amount of money that actually got lost due to bank failures, I think it was about one to 2% of all bank deposits ended up being lost in the depression without uh, bank insurance. So it really wasn't bad. Uh, the banking sector was pretty healthy. Uh, now it is, it is it, I mean, if the banks failed now, I mean, the losses would, would dwarf, yeah. uh, you know, what happened back the then. Astronomical. So, you know, I, in fact, Americans lose more than one to two percent of their value of their bank accounts every year mm. due to inflation, due to the fact that they're getting zero interest rates. So the banking system is far less stable and the real losses are far greater every year uh, than they were during the Great Depression. Uh, and, and that is what prompted the government to insure bank deposits. Um, and, it, you know, was um, 
was those losses, you know, it, it was those those banks that failed. And in the scheme of things, it really wasn't even that bad. All right, I got uh, two more questions for you here. The first one is, what do you make of Tesla's inclusion into the S&P 500 index? We have a $620 billion automobile manufacturer that has a trouble uh, turning a profit, is valued at more than all of the major conventional automobile companies combined. And at that point, it seems like uh, a great point to include that in the S&P 500 index. There was something like $128 billion worth of shares that were transacted on Friday, which uh, was some type of record. Uh, is this just peak lunacy? I mean, what is this? <laughs> yeah, you know, <clears throat> I, I guess the next thing is for them to include Bitcoin in the S&P 500. But uh well, that's going to be my next but question, yeah. but don't don't spoil that yet because I, I have a specific question on Bitcoin I want to ask you. But, um, yeah, look, I, I think that S&P should have resisted the temptation. Hold on. Take your time. Yeah, I'm doing the same thing over here because it's still early in the morning. Yeah. I don't know. Clear, clearly, you've been drinking this yeah, morning I think, and I last think they, night. Yeah. <laughs> I think S&P – should have resisted the temptation to include Tesla based on valuation. I mean, clearly, you know, based on market cap, right, it should be in the S&P, right? It is one of the largest U.S. companies based on market cap. But the market cap is crazy. I mean, the market cap has no, uh, you know, ties to reality. Now, is it possible that, Tesla is actually going to live up to investor expectations. I would even say that no, I don't even yeah, think it is I don't possible. Think so. <laughs> but 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 let's just say that it it is. Uh, all right, well then let's include it in the S and P once that's actually happened. But um, yeah, I mean, I think look, this is really uh, marks, you know. Probably not the the peak in the S and P because I guess that would be too easy if the you know Monday is when S and P is included so it's you know it's now in the S and P starting the next trading day uh, I doubt that it's going to be that obvious a bell to ring at the top aha the inclusion of uh, Tesla is the the high for the S and P so it's probably not going to be that easy uh, but I think in the scheme of things it's one of these things that is probably happening near a peak valuation for that index. Because now, of course, you know, anybody who's in the S&P has to own Tesla, whether they want to or not. You know, that's part of the problem with passive investing. Right. You have to buy everything. You right. close your nose, you buy, you know, whatever shit is in that index. You know, it doesn't matter how bad it <laughs> smells, you're, you're buying it. And, and, of course, a lot of the recent buying of Tesla was on anticipation of all the force buying <clears throat> by all the S and P index funds. You want to get a drink? But, do you want to get a drink of water? Take take two minutes. I, 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 I am it. drinking water. I don't know what's in my throat. Well, then maybe you should start drinking whiskey. <clears throat> but you know, <clears throat> it's not just the the indexers. <laughs> Everybody is benchmarked to the S and P five hundred. Right. Right. Yep. And so nobody wants to underperform the S and P five hundred. And so if the S&P 500 has Tesla and you don't and Tesla keeps going up, you could underperform. 
So it's not just the indexers that are going to buy Tesla. It's a lot of portfolio managers are going to buy Tesla because they're going to be under pressure to buy Tesla. So um, how much higher can Tesla go? I mean, obviously, a lot of the buying uh, already happened. Um, there may still be some funds that have to buy next week, Monday. But um, look, you know, I would generally, you know, take a look at the stocks that get kicked out of the S&P 500, not the ones that they add, because, you know, they, they tend to add the ones that have gone way up and get rid of the ones that have gone down. So it's more of a contrarian indicator, right? They look in the rear view mirror instead of out of the windshield. Um, you know, Tesla has been on a hell of a ride. Um, and, you know, the valuation is ridiculous. I mean, look, I mentioned on my podcast one of the stocks that we own for our customers in our funds and managed accounts, my value strategy, is Baidu. And Baidu announced this week that it was going to enter the electric car business. You know, and stock was up 20% on the week on, on that news. Um, but that is competition for Tesla. You know, I mean, Tesla is a pioneer in electric cars, but that doesn't mean they're going to own the market for all of eternity. And there already are established companies, you know, BMW uh, makes uh, um, uh, electric cars, Porsche makes electric cars. I have one myself, My the Porsche I have is a hybrid, um, but they also make an all electric car now, uh, but I have a, a Porsche plug-in plug -in hybrid. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of competition that, uh, that Tesla is gonna have. So uh, the, the, the valuation is just absolutely ridiculous. But look, you know, people are not even buying it based on its value. They're buying it based on its momentum. I mean, right. everybody who bought Tesla has been rewarded for that decision. You know, I mean, look at, you know, how, how much it's moved just since the 52-week low. I mean, the stock is, what, triple what it was? Yeah, I mean, and, and, like and, and, and so – People are buying it because it's going up. And people who aren't buying it because it's overpriced, those are the ones that look like fools because they're missing out. And and then, you know, which is probably a good segue into your Bitcoin question. I mean, um, Tesla is very much a cult stock. In fact, not what am I talking? Not more than triple. I was looking at Baidu, which is triple from the low. Tesla's fifty-two week low is seventy. It's at 700. I mean, it's almost up tenfold since it's March low. I mean, 10 times. <laughs> so, I mean, the, so it, there's a whole cult about it, right? Elon Musk is a personality. And, and, and so that's what people are buying into more than the actual business. Uh, and, 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 and so at some point, this stock is going to implode. There's no question in my mind that that's going to happen. Now, a lot of the shorts have probably given up on their position. I'm not sure how many people who were short a year or two ago are still short. I mean, that is a difficult uh, position to carry, especially if you have to explain it to your investors if right. you're not shorting <laughs> it with your own money. So, uh, but look, you know, first they wipe out the people they bet against them, right? That's how markets work, right? You, you wipe out the people that bet against you, and then you wipe out the people who bet on you. Right. When it comes to these crazy stocks that, you know, bubbles get a lot bigger uh, than anybody could imagine. 
And, uh, you know, and this is one of them. And, you know, I've thought about shorting Tesla myself on several occasions. And every time I've thought about it, I've, I've you know, not done it. And it's obviously a good thing so far anyway. Obviously, one day I will like, shit, I should have shorted it. But, you know, I, I, I just don't want to have to deal with uh, looking at it going up, you know, and being short and just knowing that I'm right, but just having to deal with the pain. I mean, there's so many things that I'd rather buy that I am making money on uh, that I, I, I would rather focus my money there than on, on trying to short a bubble. Yeah, and there's a lot of interesting going on goings on with Tesla and the option market too, which I think has helped catalyze this 10x move off lows. Uh, something is just still not sitting right with the way that the uh, call options in that name trade, and it's a lot more than just retail Robinhood buyers going in and not knowing what they're doing. There's been big money coming into out-of-the-money options in Tesla. Going all the way back now, probably uh, about a year uh, is when it started, when it made that first pre-split run up to 1000 But let's move on because uh, I want to bring this discussion to a close. And I know we have some road to cover here. Of course, I want to talk about... Yeah, hold on one sec. Let okay. me try to get some more water. Come all on. right, you got it. Okay, you got some water. I got some coffee. We're back here. Uh, among the Bitcoin advocates I see on Twitter is your son, Spencer Schiff. And uh, I always see him tweeting about Bitcoin and everybody responding to him. Talk to your father. Talk some sense into your father. Uh, <laughs> let's start the Bitcoin discussion by where do you and Spencer differ fundamentally on your uh, on your analysis of Bitcoin? Well, you know, Spencer is only 18 years old. I don't want. So, wait, 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 wait. We don't need an age disclaimer. I'm trying to figure out ideologically where do you guys differ. No, well, I'm, obviously there's some context in life experience. I mean, there's some value to having experienced bubbles in the past. Uh, my son has never experienced any, so he doesn't really know uh, what they're like. He doesn't know the psychology of it. Uh, he's new to this. He's new to investing, and so there is a value. Uh, to life experience. I mean, I, I like to think that I'm a little bit wiser now at 57 than I was at 18. But you could, and, Peter, and, you could make the same argument that the younger generation is seeing something that you don't see because you're you're old, you're outdated, you're you know that they you're just yeah, not, but, you're just but, not but, with it digitally. Right, but every younger generation makes the same mistake as assume assuming their parents and grandparents are fools uh, because <laughs> they don't get it. And look, you know. You can make that, I suppose, with music. I mean, there are a lot of, uh, you know, kids that that have different tastes in music than their parents. You know, uh, you know, when rock and roll, uh, you know, first appeared on the scene, uh, the young kids liked it, but uh, not so much <laughs> their parents. And their, but but th this is not music, right? This is, uh, you know, economics. This is money, and there are certain principles that, you know, do not change over time. You know, it, it, Bitcoin is not the first, uh, you know, attempt to reinvent gold. It is not, you know, uh, uh, you know, the first fool's gold to to come around. And I don't care if you wrap it up in the current technology of the day, right? If you if it's digital and it's on the Internet and, and all that, if you strip away that, you, you, you just get back to uh, the same reality that Bitcoin is not money, you know, that and, and, you know, why 
my son isn't able to see that. I mean, he obviously, his experience is, oh, Bitcoin got up. I bought Bitcoin and I made money. And in fact, he bought some Bitcoin early on and then sold it around 17, 18,000 and, and made a decent profit. And then he didn't really buy it back until it got back to about 10,000. So he bought it back for less than he sold it. Uh, and his initial purchase price was less than than ten thousand, but now he has more. He's out. He's now put more money into it than he had initially put in. Uh, so if it collapses now, he has more on the table than he did originally. But so far, his experience has been a positive one, and that can tend to cloud your judgment. I mean, you know, you know, once you're in a bubble, it sometimes it's hard to 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 notice it. But you know. I understand when you tell him it's of, when you tell him it's not money though when you tell him exactly what you just told me right I understand your point about being in bubbles and not being able to see him and I think you're a hundred percent right that's what makes this a great segue <clears throat> from Tesla but what does he say when you say well you know all those things you just told me well it isn't money what what I mean there isn't there isn't really an argument other than the fact that well you know people people want to buy it People believe that it is a store of value. They believe that it's digital gold. And to the extent that they want to believe that, uh, then the price can go up as long as the people who are holding it believe that. And as long as the people who are buying it also believe it, then the price can keep rising. But simply believing something doesn't make it so. You know, you can't just take something with no value and pretend that it has value. I mean, you could do it for a while, but, you know, gold doesn't have value because we pretend it does. Gold has actual value. It is a metal. It is a commodity that is used in the world. It, 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 it performs a function and it has certain properties that make it uniquely suitable to perform those functions. And so, you know, gold is an inflation hedge because it's a real thing and it has a real price relative to other commodities, other goods and services that can be quantified and measured over time. So while paper money can lose its purchasing power, gold will retain its purchasing power because the supply of gold grows very slowly uh, and the supply of paper can grow extremely rapidly. But Bitcoin, because it doesn't have any actual value apart from what value people want to uh, you know, ascribe to it because they want to buy it. But obviously, there is no real world use for Bitcoin, right? I mean, I have gold is used in jewelry. Gold is used in consumer electronics. Gold is used in dentistry. Gold is used in aerospace. You know, Bitcoin isn't used anywhere. I mean, it's just used by speculators to buy it. But apart from that speculative demand, there is no natural demand. And therefore, Bitcoin has no price that can be expressed in terms of any other good because it's not it's not a good in and of itself. So it doesn't have any value. So it can't be a store of value. And it's it's not a medium of exchange. I mean, it's not used to transact uh, commerce, it's very inefficient to use, very expensive. The price is quite volatile. So it, it, it doesn't serve any functions of money as being a store of value or medium exchange. It's not an asset. 
in the sense that it's not a stock. It doesn't pay dividends. It's not a bond. It doesn't pay interest. It's not real estate. It doesn't pay rent. I mean, you, the owner of Bitcoin uh, doesn't receive anything in, be, you know, in compensation because you own it. And yeah, I know not all stocks pay dividends, but they have earnings. They're growing their business. You buy Bitcoin, it doesn't grow. It's the same Bitcoin that you bought. I mean, it doesn't throw off any any growth. I'm, you know, and so the, the, it, the whole thing is preposterous to try to pretend that it actually has value. But it does have a market price, clearly. And the market price has risen because a lot of people who don't realize it has no value are willing to buy it. And a lot of people who already own it who don't realize it doesn't have any value don't want to sell theirs. So you have this big bubble. But at some point, the bubble has to burst. At some point, the people who have a lot of Bitcoin are going to want to have a lot of something else. Right? If you are a Bitcoin millionaire living in your parents' basement, you know maybe one day you want to have your own place. Maybe one day you want to buy a car. Maybe you want to take a vacation. You can't do all those things with your Bitcoin. You got to sell them first, which means somebody has to buy them. And, you know, that somebody has to believe that the price is going to keep going up. Otherwise, they're not going to want to buy them. And, and, and so at some point, reality is going to set in and the market is going to collapse. Uh, and, you know, I was wrong in thinking that the bubble had peaked at 20,000. For a while, I thought that that was the high. Uh, but I, I always knew that it was possible, and I always said, look, it could make a new high. It's possible that the bubble could get even bigger. I just didn't think it was probable, but but it happened. Uh, and now that we're in uncharted territory, it's really hard to say uh, how much higher Bitcoin is going to go. I mean, I, I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it if it got a lot higher, but it would surprise me if it didn't eventually crash. And, and so I don't think it's worth the gamble. Uh, you know, there are other things that are going up in price. As I, I mentioned, and not just that one stock. I mean, Bitcoin had a great week, but I own many different stocks that did better last week than Bitcoin. Um, did all of my positions do as well as Bitcoin? No, because I'm diversified. But, you know, are other people diversified <clears throat> or do they only own Bitcoin? I mean, you know, I, if people had Bitcoin as a small part of their portfolio, if somebody had a one or two percent allocation of Bitcoin or even a five percent allocation of Bitcoin, my portfolio probably beat theirs, depending on what else they own. Uh, but, you know, I, I just don't see the risk reward in, in Bitcoin versus other places I could put my money, especially since I know that I'm playing with a ticking time bomb. I mean, I think the only way you could really get into Bitcoin is if you don't realize it's a bubble. If you actually believe all the hype and you actually think it's the new gold and it's going to take over the world and it's going to be, you know, it's going to not only replace gold, <clears throat> but replace the dollar, the euro, the yen, <clears throat> you know, the, the bond markets, that this is going to be the currency that the entire world transacts in and that governments are going to eventually just start collecting taxes in Bitcoin and making social security payments in Bitcoin, you know, and so will all the other governments. If you actually think that that's what's going to happen, well, I guess you could buy it. Uh, but I don't believe that. <laughs> I know that uh, ultimately there's going to be a big group of bag holders uh, with worthless Bitcoin. Yeah, and that's what makes it so hard for me to own it 
because I'm always going to be tempted to get rid of it. What's interesting is I saw an advertisement yesterday as I was jotting down some questions for this podcast today on YouTube. It was a YouTube advertisement for one of the crypto uh, uh, like wallet services. It wasn't Coinbase, but something like Coinbase. Stephen Baldwin was doing a, uh, a little spiel on it. And at one point in the advertisement, they had a guy wearing a T-shirt that just said HODL on it. And the voiceover on the commercial is saying, well, use our software and, um, you know, take advantage of our crypto trading strategies. And I'm thinking to myself, well, there is no strategy, right? If these guys are all right about this usurping everything as the means of payment going forward or uh, store of value going forward, then the, then the strategy is HODL, just like the guy's T-shirt says so the voiceover is trying to sell you that there's going to be some kind of you know other than it being a trading instrument all right well if it goes you know support here resistance there if you're day trading it maybe but what's the strategy then the the, the strategy yeah. if you're one of these bitcoin to a million people then the, the strategy is just buy it and that's it yeah i mean that is the hodl mentality is something obviously that the insiders i mean there's there are people that have a lot of bitcoin that ultimately want to get rid of their Bitcoin. And the best way to do that is to make sure that they're not selling in competition with other Bitcoin owners. So you can only get out if somebody else is getting in, but also you have to have a lot of people who are in not getting out. And so that's the hodl, right? Get everybody else to hodl so you can sell. Because if everybody else isn't holding, if they want to sell too, well, then the price is going to start to drop. And one of the main reasons that the price is rising is because so many people are holding. Um, but, you know, obviously, you know, if nobody, if everybody agreed today not to sell their Bitcoin, if we all could, every Bitcoin owner could collude and then somebody could buy a single Satoshi, right, for a million dollars, well, then, you know, Bitcoin is worth, I don't know, I don't even know what the number exists, right? But it's all on paper. It doesn't matter, right? Like people keep saying that Bitcoin is taking gold's market cap. No, it's not. It's not interfering with gold's market cap at all. It has its own market cap, but that market cap is meaningless until you try to use it. Try to get out of your Bitcoin and actually lay claim to some goods or services or resources in the real economy. Because if, in my example, right, if Bitcoin's market cap went to a zillion, it wouldn't mean anything. Because in order to for that zillion to mean something, somebody has to sell. And right. the minute somebody sells, there goes the market cap. The market cap just implodes because the market cap is based on people not selling. So, you know, if a substantial number of Bitcoin holders actually wanted out, you know, then we might, might be able to see what the real market cap is. But I, I do see now that, that the marketing strategy is focusing on pointing out the few institutional investors who are getting in and pretending that this is the tip of some huge iceberg or that, that this is now happening across the board among institutions and, and, and this is what's going to send Bitcoin to a million. Look, there are some larger investors that are getting in. What their motivation is, I don't know. Uh, how long they intend to stay in, I don't know. I mean, maybe they just feel that 
they can help stoke the momentum just simply by buying, and then they could quickly sell out and make a quick profit. I don't think these the institutions that may be getting involved are hodlers. <laughs> I think they'll 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 take their profits uh, quickly, and in fact, maybe even cut their losses quickly if the momentum turns. Um, but I can see the advertising. I talk about this by far. The app, the, the biggest advertiser on CNBC is a grayscale Bitcoin trust. Right. I mean, the advertisements are nonstop. I really wish I could see the numbers for the ad buy. I mean, my bet would be that they are the best customer of CNBC, maybe by a factor of five, maybe by a factor of 10, how much money they are spending uh, to pump Bitcoin on CNBC. And I also don't think it's coincidence that almost all the coverage of, of Bitcoin on CNBC is positive. Uh, I rarely hear a negative comment about Bitcoin and they talk about it constantly. They have guests on constantly with pie in the sky forecasts and they're never challenged. Uh, there's never like a bull bear debate. They never have a Bitcoin bear on there. All of the, the hosts, they're all pro Bitcoin. And I think what's the most ironic part about it is when I used to come on to talk about gold, they all were negative. They were all were against me. Why aren't this? Why aren't they using the same reasons that they were anti-gold to be anti-Bitcoin? I mean, if Bitcoin is digital gold, then why is that so much better than actual gold? If they thought it was dumb for investors to buy gold, why isn't it just as dumb to buy digital gold? You know. If when I was going on CNBC saying that the Federal Reserve was reckless, they were printing too much money, we were going to have inflation and investors needed to hedge. If they made fun of me for suggesting something as crazy as not trusting the central banks and the Federal Reserve and not trusting the dollar. Why now when a Bitcoin guy comes on and makes the exact same points, they're right. like, oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, why aren't they subject to the same ridicule that I was? Right. Is is there some coincidence between all the money? Maybe if I was a big advertiser, maybe if I was spending tons of money buying ads on CNBC, maybe they would have treated me differently. I don't know. Well, <laughs> but, they're um, just they're, they're in essence momentum traders uh, on CNBC, too, which means what I mean by that is if something's going up, they're just going to keep. They're going to keep encouraging to blow air in whatever bubble it is. It doesn't matter whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's, you know, soybeans. If, if lumber is going through the roof, they're going to get on there and be like, lumber, lumber, buy, 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 buy. I mean, they just they they are they are a uh, a lagging indicator, uh, like a, a dumbed down lagging indicator. You know, there's no. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a point to be said there, because I remember. The last time that the Bitcoin uh, price bug was up on the CNBC screen was back in 2017 when it ran up to 20,000. And so they I don't even think they included the price of Bitcoin on their screen until it was very close to 20,000. And then it crashed and all of a sudden the bug disappeared. We mm -hmm. never saw it again until like, you know, a month ago or so something like that. So it's like they don't care about Bitcoin after the price crashes. Uh, they only want to focus attention on it when the price is on the highs. Correct. And obviously, that serves the interests of anybody who is trying to sell. And, you know, because of all this constant marketing on CNBC, I think that there are a lot of people who are buying this Grayscale Trust. That's why the trust is at a 33% premium to Bitcoin. I mean, you're paying 
33% more than you could just go onto Coinbase and just buy the Bitcoin yourself. And the trust charges a 2% a year fee just to custody your, your Bitcoin. That's not a management fee. They don't manage your Bitcoin for you. All they do is hold it. That is far more than it costs to have a third party store your gold. So people are paying a 33% premium to pay a 2% a year fee to store Bitcoin that they could buy without a premium and store for free themselves. And the, what's happening is Grayscale is using all this money that it gets by, over, by selling uh, Bitcoin at a premium to go into the market and buy more Bitcoin. It is the biggest buyer of Bitcoin now is Grayscale. Uh, and they're able to buy a lot of Bitcoin because every Bitcoin they buy for a dollar, they turn around and sell it for a dollar thirty-three, and then they use some of that money as a recycle it back into CNBC to pay for these ads. And apparently, they got a whole new commercial that they just shot that's going to start uh, in January. Uh, but I mean, I don't know. Pretty soon, maybe the only ad that you'll see on CNBC will be from Grayscale. <laughs> You know, they should just say CNBC brought to you by Grayscale and Bitcoin. I mean, I, I mean, that's it. You know, I'm, but you know, we'll see what happens when this bubble pops and you have a lot of people who bought uh, GBTC in their IRAs and uh, they end up losing their entire retirement. Uh, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, I, I, I assume there's going to be a lot of lawsuits and uh, CNBC, uh, Grayscale. I mean, I think they're going to be plaintiffs and, you know. Look, I, you know, look, I think a lot of people, you know, need to blame themselves, you know, for getting suckered into this, their own greed. Uh, but look, you know, this is America. So when people lose money, they sue. And so I expect the same thing to happen uh, with Bitcoin. So all you guys that are going to make money on Bitcoin, be prepared to give some of it back to the lawyers and some of it back to the people who lose money on Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah, and the diversification argument is that you made earlier is an interesting one too because I see the same type of diversification into Bitcoin that I see in Tesla. When I see people talk about you know Tesla, when I go onto Wall Street bets on Reddit, which by the way I love, I find that whole thread hilarious. But the ethos over there is to own nothing but Tesla or to own nothing but Bitcoin or you know the anti diversification. And so um, we we see it on a bigger scale with this. Uh, with Kathy Wood from Ark Invest, who, you know, ha has little exp had little experience, I think, in investing in ETFs in 2016, comes onto the scene in 2016, starts Ark Invest, you know, uh, starts these uh, the innovation ETF and all this stuff. Then all of a sudden, Tesla goes bananas, and the Qs, you know, the Nasdaq rather goes bananas, and we find out, okay, well, SoftBank is gaming the market with uh, call options, and the Fed is in saving the day, and then all of a sudden, this person is put up on this pedestal. I read an article the other day where she was being compared to Mario Gabelli. And I was like, man, I can't think of two completely opposite style investors than this woman who, in my opinion, got lucky over the last couple of years with the with these tech investments. You have these companies that aren't making money, aren't generating consistent cash, you know, at these insanely asinine valuations being held up by the central banks, being held up by retail, being held up by, you know, SoftBank and this nonsense. And I say, all right, well, she's being, you know, and, and there's this big fight now over, uh, you know, one of her early investors wants to take over her firm because she's seen such huge flows uh, into her ETFs. And I'm just thinking, man, it's all going to end badly. And, yeah. um, and you know, one of the, the, the big uh, marketing pitches of the Bitcoin guys is that, look, you know, you can't afford not to have Bitcoin in your portfolio because it's it, the returns are so phenomenal 
that if you don't have it, you're you're missing out. <clears throat> and therefore, everybody should at least have some allocation of Bitcoin, have one percent, two percent, because, you know, because if you don't have it, you know, you're just going to get killed. <clears throat> you know, you're going to be your relative performance is going to suffer. And so they think everybody is going to be forced to buy it because they're scared not to own it because they're afraid of <clears throat> missing out. Right. And so they say, look, you know, <clears throat> just put in one percent or two percent, because even if it goes to zero, well, I mean, what do you lose? One or two percent of your portfolio. Uh, so just buy it because the upside is so high. And, you know, obviously, if they if the Bitcoin insiders can convince all the big money to put one percent into Bitcoin, then that that's their ticket out. They can get out and then, you know, leave the, the all these institutions as as the bag holders. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's a very compelling story what they're telling. I mean, you know, they're and, and, and they're really betting on the foolishness of institutions to just want to buy anything simply because it's gone up. I mean, and there's a reason to believe that that could happen because look, they bought into the dot coms. Uh, you know, there's a lot of crazy things that some of these institutions have done near market tops. So the idea that, well, you know, maybe they'll buy Bitcoin too. I mean, it's not. Uh, completely ridiculous to assume that, but you know there there's such there's such an aversion. You know I couldn't get institutions. I talked and talked to institutions uh, about adding gold and gold stocks for years, and it's like beating my head against the wall. Uh, you know they don't want to do that. So it seems that it's so out of character for them to go to Bitcoin if they wouldn't even go to gold. It's like they didn't even want real gold. Uh, so why buy? digital gold. I mean, even if you tell an institution, hey, Bitcoin is digital gold. Well, so what? I don't even care. I don't want gold anyway. So why do I need some digital substitute of something that I didn't even want to buy? So, you know, now, you know, to try to convince the gold bugs who wanted gold, right? Oh, you guys like gold. You don't trust central banks, but, you know, buy Bitcoin instead of gold. I mean, I think that's a pretty hard sell, at least to me. I mean, I, I don't see any of the real attributes in, in Bitcoin, despite the fact that they want to represent it as a gold colored coin and they want to pretend that you mine it, that's not going to fool me into thinking it's gold. I mean, I, I mean, but but yeah, there are some people that have been fooled, uh, but, you know, that that's why the price is as high as it is. But, you know, I, I, I think the vast majority of people who have been fooled are already in. And uh, just because they got the price up to twenty four thousand, it uh, doesn't mean that now everybody's going to throw in the towel and capitulate and just buy it. I mean, you look at that chart of Bitcoin. You look at a uh, at a at a monthly chart of the entire Bitcoin since it started, and you look at this parabolic move that we've just had, and you know, compare it to the parabolic move that it had in 2017. I mean, yeah, this one uh, is higher, but it started from a higher base. But how do you know that it's not going to end the same way? How do you know that we're not going to have an equally strong move to the downside when this thing, uh, you know, loses its momentum? I mean, how, how do you know that? Nobody knows that. No. You know, it makes more sense to me. I mean, something that goes straight up should come straight down. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me that it's going to reach some permanently uh, high plateau this time, you know, that, that it failed to reach last time. Or, you know, it might, and you might have to listen to people say, well, it's at 100,000 now. You've been wrong, wrong, wrong before it goes to 5,000. I mean, you know, so you, you don't know. you got to kind of endure the, uh, the, yeah, the trauma I, I now prepared. of everybody telling you that you're wrong. Yeah, I'm prepared for people to tell me that I'm wrong up until the point that they finally have to admit that I'm right. You know, so... <laughs> 
you know, I've been there before with the dot coms, with real estate. You know, I, you know, it, it, it doesn't bother me um, that that, you know, that, that this happens, you know. I mean, I, I, I do think it's it's unfortunate that Bitcoin is creating such a big distraction and that a lot of energy and enthusiasm that is being directed at Bitcoin should be directed at a real alternative to fiat currency, which is gold. Uh, that's really what everybody should be embracing. And I know there is, you know, you asked me about my son, Spencer, um, and, you know, what attracts him to it. And there is a, you know, a strong free market, libertarian, you know, anti-government, anti-Fed aspect of Bitcoin. And I think that part is attractive. But, you know, just because it's a free market alternative doesn't mean it is a good alternative. <laughs> you know, fiat currency doesn't have any real value, but any value it has comes from its legal tender status and the confidence that is created based on government support. Well, uh, fiat, um, you know, cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, its value is also based on confidence. Even though the confidence doesn't emanate from the government, it emanates from the people who currently own it, the similarities are still overwhelming in that it's all a function of belief and confidence. And if people stop believing in it, then whatever value was ascribed to it, ascribed to it disappears. Um, and so even though the government is what gives the dollar value, it's ultimately the confidence that the people have in the dollar because the governments can, can, can say this is our legal tender, but if the public doesn't have confidence in it, then it's gonna collapse anyway. And so the same thing is true uh, with Bitcoin. It's all about the confidence of the people who are willing to hold it and willing to accept it. And just because the confidence emanates uh, from the people directly and not through government doesn't necessarily mean that, that it's correct. Gold, on the other hand, doesn't derive its value from government or people or confidence. It derives its value from its own uses in the world. The fact that it is desired as a metal for all the things that you can do with gold as a metal. Now, the people chose gold to use as money because it functions better as money than any other commodity. So that's one thing that the people chose, whereas the government tries to force you to use uh, its fiat as money. The public chose to use gold as money versus any other commodity, but the people didn't choose to give gold value. That value is there whether you choose to accept it or not. Uh, the you know it's it's it it has that value regardless of the fact that it's also used as as money. Uh, so that's really where the libertarian should be. We should be about um, advocating free market money. Go back to what the people chose to use as money, gold, rather than what the government invented and conned the people into accepting. Because the same thing is happening with Bitcoin. It's an invention. And people have been conned into believing that it's real money, uh, that it's digital gold when it's not. I mean, it may be digital, but it ain't gold. <laughs> Peter, since I started the podcast, there has been, I've noticed over the last eh, maybe year, year and a half, 
there's been an abundance of uh, new podcasts that have popped up, inviting many of the same guests on that I've had on, which I think is a great benefit to uh, to the financial community. Uh, there's also been, I think. Uh, a lot of interesting podcasts popping up where people are uh, drinking like I have a tendency to do on my podcast and <laughs> cursing like I have a tendency to do on my podcast. So with that happening, uh, I've decided I want to clean my act up a little bit. Will you take me out to buy a suit the next time I see you? Can we, can we go suit shopping together? Will you teach well, me how to know, be a classy individual? Well, but your podcast doesn't include video, so you could just pretend you're wearing a suit. Maybe you could put on a digital suit. <laughs> But, um, yeah, you know, I think there's going to be some good sales on suits because, you know, people aren't going to the office anymore. They don't really need a suit to the extent that they need a suit. They just need the jacket because nobody can see their pants because they're just on uh, just on. um, on, I I have to clean up my on Zoom. And, you know, it's usually the pants that need to be pressed first because you're always (laughs) sitting down. They get, you know, so that's probably going to hurt the cleaners because if you just wear your jacket and, of course, if you never take the jacket out of the house and you just put it on for a Zoom call, you probably never have to take it to the dry cleaner. So, oh uh, yeah, a lot of... <laughs> what are we talking about right now? <laughs> we're changing how the economy is going to change because of, because of COVID. But, yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, podcasts out there now. There's a lot of crypto podcasts, too, that have just uh, come out. Uh, a lot of crypto uh, uh, YouTube channels. Um, you know, I, 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 I mentioned on my own podcast, I noticed last week that somebody came up with a list of the top 10 crypto villains of 2020. And I was a little disappointed that I was only number four. I wanted to, be, <laughs> wanted to top the list. So, you know, I'll, I'm going to have to work harder next year to try to to try to be number one. Although I did I did win this scammy award. I was watching some, you know, <laughs> for the biggest uh, or the I don't know, the non coiner. But I won some award in Las Vegas, so uh, I got that going for me. But yeah, you know, I think it is interesting, you know, that my son, you know, you know, it, it, you know, because all these guys are trying to say that old people like me are dinosaurs, and uh, you know, we just don't get it. And so here's my 18 year old son who gets it, right? So, uh, you know, he's smart, and he's developing his own. You know, you follow him on Twitter. He's almost got 25,000 followers now. So, uh, and I know he's got a lot of crypto people following him. Yeah, he so. posts them. Well, everybody, uh, you know, the crypto people like him, and everybody likes uh, family drama too. You know, so to the to the extent that it's a TMZ story, you know, shift family divided, people like that. But listen, Peter, yeah. I want to I want to let you go. I appreciate your time. It's been a wonderful Sunday morning speaking to you. I promise not to spam you with text messages for at least like another two months. All right. Although, in one thing, in fairness to my son, he is not all in on Bitcoin. I mean, he does he does have. Uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, gold and silver stocks and and stuff like that. So he's diversified. We're going suit shopping next time we see each other in person, all right? Well, you know, will will you buy everything online now? What? No, yeah, but I mean, at some point we'll see each other in like New York City again, and and you're taking me suit shopping, and we're going to class this joint up. Maybe you'll come out, maybe you'll come out to Puerto Rico. We don't, we don't wear, wear a lot of suits here. We wear bathing suits. Oh, that, that's that sounds like uh, I wore a bathing suit at a conference once. It was an interesting response from the uh, crowd. But all right, Peter, thanks so much, brother. I appreciate you so much. All right, take care. Talk to you soon. That was the one, the only Peter Schiff, my man. 
Oh, look, my phone's giving me little messages. Every piece of electronic shit in my life wants to help you out. We did something nice and turned your volume down for you. Based on your headphone usage over the last seven days, the volume has been turned down to save your hearing. Thank you. Maybe I want my shit loud. Maybe that's like, uh, maybe that's how I like to get down. Sex, drugs, and rock and roll and financial podcasts. They all go together. All right, fools. Have a great Sunday. I'm out. Peace.